Welcome to Value Investing, the Starvine Way, where my goal is to help you learn more about value investing and compounding wealth with a long-term focus. We will accomplish this by sharing a mix of monologues and conversations. I'm your host, Stephen Coe, founder of Starvine Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as investment advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek advice that reflects their personal financial situation. In this episode, we will be discussing the use of checklists in investing. I think this is a topic that is underestimated in its importance and may be underutilized by both do-it-yourself and professional investors. In our everyday lives, we do use checklists all the time, even if on a subconscious level. For example, when changing lanes while driving, you will signal, then check the road ahead, check the rear view mirror, and then turn your neck to check the blind spot before finally changing lanes. An experienced driver will do all that without thinking. The failure to do any one of those steps could be life-threatening. With investing, it is so easy to make a trade that we can do it on impulse and emotion. And for that reason, I would say that checklists should be placed out front and done on a conscious level as a tool to hopefully reduce mistakes and help find those big winners. In a book called The Science of Hitting, Ted Williams stated that his first rule of hitting was to get a good ball to hit. He divided the strike zone into 77 cells and assigned percentages to each cell that represented the probability of success. Having extreme plate discipline was no doubt a large contributor to his achievement of a .344 career batting average. However, the most impactful insight from the book, in my view, was that a batter increases the pitcher's target by 37% when swinging at pitches just 2 inches out of the zone. Such a minor relaxation of selectivity can make the difference between a 300 and a 250 hitter. Investing is no different in these uncertain times. It always makes sense to improve one's decision-making process, but not to relax one's standards and swing based on trends that may in hindsight prove to be large distortions in the market. We should all look to the discipline of Ted Williams in terms of how we carry out investment conduct. The key difference though with investing is that all it takes is a few instances of permanent loss that is, large positions going bust, to scar an otherwise pristine track record. The old adage that a chain is only as strong as its weakest link really applies here. Hence, the prevention of mistakes to our best ability is every bit as important as finding winners. The Checklist Manifesto is a book by Atul Gawande. There is already a lot of existing investment literature about the importance of finding checklists in investing, but it took a totally different viewpoint to drill the point home for me. Written from the standpoint of a surgeon, the book builds a compelling case for the explicit use of checklists for tasks that involve complexity. It may seem like common sense that the medical professionals operating on a patient should have clean hands. Failure of just one individual out of several on an operating team can lead to an infection in a patient. And yet, Gawande's findings illustrated a marked reduction in mortality relating to surgery after a formal checklist was enforced in hospitals to ensure hand washing. Can investors learn from this and achieve better results by using a practical checklist? I certainly think so. Our memories are faulty and our thinking can become muddied on a bad day. Potentially, it may be on one of those rare off days that you decide to make a big bet on a shiny new investment. 
I believe the resistance many have to adopting a checklist is the very simplicity of it. It's like riding a bike with training wheels. Additionally, practitioners in any field may not see the virtue of introducing an extra step into the decision-making process that questions the judgment they have accumulated through years of experience. Previously, aside from writing a thesis statement and performing evaluation, I made mental notes to check for certain things in each investment. The problem, though, with such a practice is that it is easy to subconsciously take shortcuts. In the past, I wrote about the sensibility of employing checklists in investing. Given the thousands of publicly traded securities, we need a way to effectively narrow the universe. The obvious way is to use screening software to filter out all the candidates that don't meet your criteria, whether it be valuation or financial characteristics that are available in the database. However, my opinion is that this approach's key weakness is that it will skip over the best ideas because of its inability or the difficulty to pick out the qualitative attributes. When it comes to using checklists in general, there is always a compromise in using this approach. Investments that have a higher probability of failure will be filtered out, but at the risk of missing out enormous opportunities that don't make it through the screens. Keep in mind that this is based on my preference, but what I arrived at was a short list of characteristics I would require in any long-term investment. MCARV. M-C-A-R-V. The M standing for moats, C for capital allocation, R for reinvestment runway, and V for valuation. Let us briefly walk through each requirement. The first is moats. These are characteristics that allow a business to enjoy above average profits over a long time period, despite the constant efforts of competition. Without moats, we would have little confidence that a company's current earnings power will have longevity against competition. I like to see one or more moats before putting a company on my watch list or doing any serious work on it. The moat that most of us are familiar with is brand power. Think of the obvious examples that have stood the test of time and thereby allowed premium pricing across decades. Coke, McDonald's, and Disney. These companies are able to consistently price their products at a good distance above costs because of brand power. Next is a network effect. This happens when a business's service becomes more valuable with each additional user. This is a powerful moat because it tends to lead to monopoly-like status, and it is most easily found with internet-based businesses. Before the internet, newspapers enjoyed this moat in a local sense. More subscribers meant more appeal for advertisers, and the newspaper would then be able to reinvest profits into generating more and better content, thereby leading to more subscribers. Nowadays, social media is the most dominant example. Take Facebook. The network effect started taking hold in 2007 and has since spiraled up. Each additional user increased the incentive for new users to join because it increased the likelihood of being able to find who you're looking for. This then increase the value for advertisers who can target their ad spend with more accuracy since Facebook sells the ability to direct ads based on user traits. My favorite type of moat is switching costs because it is prevalent in businesses of any size, thereby making it easier to find. As the name implies, switching costs make it tough to switch to a competitor's service. There are certain attributes to look for, which I'll cover in a separate episode. An everyday example would be your accountant especially if your tax situation is complicated. Switching to another accountant would be a hassle because it would take time and explanation for the new accountant to learn your situation, whereas the incumbent provider has already gone up the learning curve and should know the nuances of your situation. This leads to a sticky customer base. 
The same can be seen with Element Solutions, which is a mid-sized company that provides specialty chemicals for electronics and industrial uses. Its customer base has a low churn rate because the switching costs are high. Their customers are original equipment manufacturers, and their engineers spend months to years working with customers to reach exacting specifications. Although not impossible, it would only be worth it for customers to switch suppliers if there was a serious problem. Other modes include patent protection, regulation, and licensing that is tough to obtain, and being the low-cost producer. Like any other checklist item, a moat in itself does not guarantee the long-term success of any investment. And in fact, it is important to observe carefully over time whether the moats are eroding. But it is, in my opinion, a critical ingredient because without this attribute, there is nothing stopping competition from crumbling the company and therefore your investment. Next on my initial checklist is something called capital allocation. This is an assessment of management skill in deploying and reinvesting cash resources to grow the value of a corporation. For a public company, there are only five basic levers in the toolbox. Investment in organic growth, acquisitions, debt reduction, issuing dividends, and share buybacks. It is uncommon to find management teams who have a long and successful track record of intelligently allocating capital. The wonderful thing about public companies is that their financial statements disclose enough to assemble a rough track record, allowing us a cursory look at how value was created and what levers were pulled. Examples where you can piece together a track record of profitable, shall we call stick handling of allocation, include the CGI Group, Alimentation Couchetard, Brookfield Asset Management, and Liberty Media. These companies have proven to be rational and disciplined about how to direct cash flow to opportunities that fit the time. For example, making acquisitions only when strict criteria have been met or buying back their own stock when the price is low. Next is reinvestment runway. This is connected to the first two, but if a company has moats and an intelligent capital allocator board, that isn't sufficient. The company needs a runway of opportunities to channel retained earnings, that is, earnings that remain after paying dividends. These retained earnings need to earn a decent rate of return in order to provide investors with satisfactory growth over the long term. So whether that is Costco or Walmart having a decent runway to build new profitable locations, or opportunity for CRH Medical to continue to buy enough small anesthesia practices at cheap prices. You need confidence that the company has sound pathways to reinvest past earnings. And all the above should count for nothing if we cannot buy the stock at a valuation that makes sense. Price is an all-critical input for any investment. How does the price compare to what a company earns in a normal year? Is the company even profitable? If a company is growing quickly but is still unprofitable or burning through cash, then it hasn't reached a point of self-sufficiency. After we have identified a strong business, as identified by moats, run by managers who are likely to reinvest earnings intelligently, capital allocation, and with ample opportunity to reinvest said earnings, we must attempt to calculate a value or a range of value for a company and decide on the price at or under which the idea will provide a compelling return. It is possible that an idea is weaker on one or more checklist items, but is attractive at a low enough price. This isn't a science. As value investors, we aim to underpay in order to create a form of downside protection, 
and in so doing, we are setting up a situation that has favorable odds of success. My conviction is that an investor increases the chance of winning in the long term and reduces the likelihood of permanent loss if the above list can be satisfied. But I have just walked through one example and your checklist might be completely different. The bottom line is that if we want consistency, at least in the long term, we need to be conscious of the attributes we are seeking in an investment. That way, we will be able to look back from the future and assess what needs to be tweaked if that's the case. The same thinking should apply to other types of decision making, like the hiring of employees for a business. Kimberly here, Stephen's partner. Stephen has developed this checklist that he uses to evaluate to see if a company is something that he's going to do a deep dive into. And when we say a deep dive, that means that involves a lot of math that you're not able to see. So I thought after listening to his monologue, it would be a good idea to go through a couple companies that a lot of people are familiar with. These companies that we're going to talk about are Intuit and Discovery Inc. are companies that aren't actually part of the portfolio, but we're using them to highlight because fairly well-known companies. And also, I'd just like to give another disclaimer that we've had at the beginning. We're not saying that these are great investments that you should put your life savings into. We're just using them right now as an example to illustrate Stephen's checklist that he goes through. I know we all have checklists in our life. Before we leave the house, I have to make sure I have everything for the baby bottles, diapers, extra set of clothes, extra shirt for me sometimes because I get filthy. So it's just a checklist and uh, a look into Stephen's mind and how he would evaluate a company based on his M-carve. So Stephen, can you start by just talking a bit about who, what these companies are? So the first one, Discovery Inc. This is the company that owns Discovery Channel, TLC, or what we know as the Learning Channel, OWN, or the Oprah Winfrey Network, Eurosport, Animal Planet, HGTV, Cooking Channel, and the Food Network. These are just some several of what they own, and they own actually several more franchises. And some of the shows you might be familiar with are 90 Day Fiance, Property Brothers, Shark Week, Deadliest Catch, Gold Rush, Little People Big World, House Hunters, Love It and List It, and Outdaughtered. So what they specialize in is unscripted content. And the other company, Intuit, this one is probably well less known. It is the company that owns the dominant QuickBooks accounting software franchise and TurboTax, which is used kind of DIY uh, tax preparation software. So we're going to look at these companies one at a time. And we're going to start with Discovery. And we're going to go through the MCARV checklist to see how that matches up in Stephen's mind, if it's a fit or not. So the M in MCARV is Moats. Stephen, what are the moats for discovery? All right. So moats for discovery. One thing is it has a lot of brand power. What people might not realize, like in HGTV and the Learning Channel, is that of all of its stable of brands, discovery has the highest mindshare among women. 25% of viewing time in the U.S. of women between 25 and 54 years of age. So it's the number one place advertisers to reach women and yet its cost to the advertisers is less than half of the broadcasters meaning that the advertisers get great value by using discovery another moat uh, in this company is its low cost of production so because it's unscripted discovery's content on average cost 
per hour less than $400,000 versus $5 million per hour for a scripted show. So that's less than one-tenth. All I can add to this is oh, it was at least six years ago when we cut the cord for cable. And at that time, you know, I was... Um, I wasn't struggling with it, but the only channel that I missed was the Learning Channel. So that was like the Little People, Big World, the Sister Wives, Say Yes to the Dress. Like those were the shows that that was the only channel I really missed. And I have to say in the beginning, I would look for some illegal TV downloads and you could find virtually anything, any show out there to watch for free. But the TLC shows were well guarded. I could not find a source for those at all. So again, I guess that would be another moat. They have that protected somehow. Anyway, since then, I've gotten over my need for TV. If it came up again, like I, this is a channel that I actually really like. So I agree that it's something for women. And then another thing Stephen was saying there, talking about the cost to production. You might want to talk about this a little bit more, Stephen, but during these really weird times of COVID and with the shutdowns, and we're still in the middle of this pandemic, the 90 Day Fiance show, apparently they were able to continue to come up with some new content. I don't watch it, but I hear they had some kind of like 90 Day Fiance in lockdown. So they were still able to come up with new content. So for me, I'm thinking that's pretty great. A company that doesn't have the moat of needing a studio they can continue to make more work content. It's got to be a good thing that they can continue to work through these situations. So that's one of the amazing attributes of this company is that during the lockdown, they were able to come out uh, with new content. Some of it was kind of like selfie content. People would, in some of these shows, they would film themselves. I think an important point uh, in this name is that we have this streaming wars going on. This stock is under a lot of pressure. I mean, it, the price is the same as it was 10 years ago, despite uh, earnings per share really tripling. In these streaming wars, Discovery has to make a change to a hybrid model. I don't think cable will disappear tomorrow, but cable or linear programming, as it is known, is kind of a bit of a melting ice cube as people cut the cord and switch to services like Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, Disney Plus. Discovery hasn't made that change yet. And actually, they haven't even announced the details. They have it in the works. But this is a time of uncertainty in that investors don't quite know what the financials will look like after this transition happens. And I think that's part of the opportunity. Okay, now we're moving on to capital allocation. Just to review, capital allocation is how a company pulls the levers of how it uses its financial resources to build shareholder value. I would say Discovery's track record is excellent. It is effectively controlled by a man named John Malone, who controls the Liberty Media Group of companies. He's known as a cable cowboy and is also the biggest landowner in the U.S. Discovery's track record in capital allocation is excellent because they've been very thoughtful about acquiring companies, and when to buy back stock. One thing to note here is that Malone does not like dividends. So even though the company could easily afford to pay a dividend, it has never done so, which is consistent with all the Malone-controlled companies like SiriusXM Radio, Charter Communications, Liberty Global, and Liberty Latin America, because dividends are double-taxed. When you receive a dividend, 
It comes from earnings that were already taxed at the corporate level, and then they get taxed again in your hands. Malone doesn't like that, so he defaults to share buybacks. That said, this company has bought back shares a lot in the past, and they've leaned into those buybacks when shares were cheap because of the investor perception headwinds uh, the shares have suffered. But over time, I mean, over decades, uh, Malone's track record has been very good. So I think in terms of capital allocation, I really trust his decision making in that when he makes acquisitions, you can see the thoughtfulness put into them and the discipline. All right. And clarifying for someone who's not into business and investing, buying back stocks. If I was to own stocks in Discovery and Discovery as a company decided to buy back their stocks, that means they're taking their stocks out of the market and making my stocks more valuable. Does that make sense? Is that what you're talking about? All a share buyback really is when you have multiple owners and one or more shareholders get bought out. So perhaps the best way to describe this is with a pizza. If you have a pizza and we slice it into 10 slices, then we each get one tenth, so 10%. But if we were to buy out half of the recipients of the slices, then we'd cut it into five slices. So each remaining owner, if you want to put it that way, now has a fifth of the pizza or double the share that that person previously had. So what's important here is, is that pizza growing, right? So if you want to spend money to buy back other people's ownership, it ends up being a good idea if you didn't pay too much and B, if the company ends up growing or if the whole pizza grows and your slice can keep growing with it. And then the inverse of this is when a company needs to build money and they issue more stock. So that 10 slices of pizza, they end up cutting it into 20 pieces in that case. So then you're getting a smaller slice for what you own of the stock. That's exactly it. So if you have a company that needs capital to sustain itself and issues more shares, right, it is creating more slices. And in so doing, your slice or your ownership decreases. Well, I can totally relate to that because around here, Stephen likes to gobble up the pizza. So I have to make sure I get my (laughs) big piece before he gets to it. You got it. Then the kids. That's right. Okay. So what's the next letter on your checklist? Reinvestment runway. Okay, reinvestment runway. What are discoveries? What's the reinvestment runway? This is connected to the first two. First, so why would you want a company to have an identifiable moat? It's because when you invest in a business, you want it to be around in the future. The competition can't get past the physical moat. Exactly. So business is very competitive. And if you have a profitable business, you can bet that someone else recognizes that. And we live in a capitalist society. And they will legally come after you, their own business, uh, as as long as they think it's worth the effort. So that's why it's important to have a moat. And if you don't have a moat, then, well, if you have earnings, then chances are you're not going to be able to reinvest in the business to grow profitably if you have a lot of competition coming after you. We also went over capital allocation. Since you have money to reinvest to grow the company, and there's a moat, which protects your efforts, the capital allocation is really the decision-making behind how to channel that money in the best way, which we just covered. And next is reinvestment runway, meaning, all right, just because you have a moat and because you have the ability to invest well, but there has to be a runway, some kind of channels of opportunity for the company to put the money profitably. 
And that's where we're at now. So reinvestment runway. Well, with a company like Discovery, if you look at what it's done in the past, it's probably telling of what it's going to do in the future. So with these Malone control companies, they like to make acquisitions and they like to buy back stock and they like to use debt to do that. I think that debt levels might be higher than what a lot of people are comfortable with, but it's really financial engineering and I don't think it's excessive at the end of the day. But those are the three main things that you'll see Malone control companies do is they'll buy other companies when it is favorable and have a combination of that and buying back its own stock. And that's why I call it stick handling, uh, depending on which opportunity is better. And then paying down the debt that they raise to make those acquisitions. So it seems like the decisions are very much guided by tax efficiency. With Discovery, I think the reinvestment runway is quite decent. Well, for one, they have to make this conversion to -to direct-to-consumer DTC, or in other words, it's streaming efforts. So that's going to be an obvious use of capital. Share buybacks, its shares are trading quite cheap on a free cash flow yield basis. This company generates $3 billion of free cash flow, and per share that works out to $4.30. The shares trade at around $22, which means that... The return on investment or the yield, the free cash flow yield on the current price is approximately 20%. That's very high. And going back to the uncertainty, I think that explains why. But the company right now is very free cash flow generative. And they've recently announced that they're ready to resume buying back shares. But when it comes to acquisitions, I mean, that's the thing that's hard to see. When they bought Scripps, which closed in 2018... That ended up being a very good decision. There were all these costs they could cut out, and it was synergistic. But it would be hard to see in the future what companies uh, they buy and what those opportunities are and what the pipelines are. And that's a constant, but I think that one thing we can feel confident about is the track record of the management over decades. So they bought Scripps. What is Scripps? Scripps is another content company, and when they bought that company, They onboarded a bunch of brands, HGTV being one of them. Okay, V, valuation. What is the valuation for Discovery, Stephen? Just before I start this section, the first three, moats, capital allocation, and reinvestment opportunities, these are attributes that may make a company or business desirable, but the valuation is that final dot that if it is not there or the price isn't low enough, then the returns aren't there. So after all, all else being equal, the lower the price you pay, the higher your return. Discovery looks quite cheap. At the current price of 22, it's basically where it was 10 years ago. And it's because I believe of all the uncertainties around the change of distribution and the DTC or the direct-to-consumer changes that haven't even been announced yet. So as I just mentioned, this trade's close to 20% free cash flow yield. And that leaves a lot of room, in my view, for things to go wrong and us still being okay. In fact, the earnings per share or the cash flow per share has tripled over the last 10 years. If you look right now at $4.30 versus $1.30 free cash flow per share in 2011, that's more than a triple and yet the price is the same. How do you end up with a situation like that? When it comes to any kind of private transaction of companies, it's hard to imagine that a business you want to buy that's tripled its 
earnings over 10 years that you couldn't find a buyer that would be paying more than what the price offered was 10 years ago. But in the stock market, we can have these overhangs in perception, especially when there's any kind of uncertainty towards the future uh, that result in this kind of valuation. Before I finish this off, when it comes to the overhang in perception in this company, I see this as somewhat similar to Nintendo in 2012. So those of you who remember, Nintendo was trading at close to the cash in its account. I mean, that stock was really hated on. It was seen as extremely toxic. So at that time, Nintendo had a similar problem. Its staple of brands, the ones you'll be familiar with are Mario Brothers and Pokemon. People were falsely attributing the slowness in sales to the power of the brand. But in fact, what happened was its distribution that it depends on, which are the gaming consoles, which have a five to six year life. At the time, the Wii U was released and sales were sluggish. It was slow to gain traction. So the investor community labeled the company as dying. Here we have something similar. The distribution, meaning cable and linear programming, is slowly dying or it is changing. And Discovery's brands are very, very strong, but the distribution is waning and it hasn't yet jumped to the next step, which is the streaming service. So, But at the end of the day, with Nintendo, it was the content that really shone through. And I think that's going to be the case here. That said, looking at this whole checklist, I would definitely put Discovery on my watch list. I haven't bought it yet, but it certainly looks compelling and there's potential there. We're going to go through the second company. The second company is called Intuit, which owns QuickBooks and TurboTax. So looking at moats, Stephen, do you want to talk about this company and the moats with it? With QuickBooks, the dominant moat is its switching costs. So switching costs really appear everywhere. And that's why I like this moat is they're easy to find. But going back to what I said monologue, switching costs are attributes that make it hard for customers to switch to competitors. We see this a lot in business software. QuickBooks has 80% market share in the U.S. for small business accounting software. And its switching costs are really high because it's really hard to rip this out of your business once it is integrated. I mean, that's such a powerful thing. Being a regular user of both the desktop and the online versions I actually have a feel for those switching costs. So first of all, whether it's a desktop or online version of QuickBooks you use, it takes time to learn how to use a software, which means that switching to competitor to save money is bound to require investment of time to get up to speed. Secondly, it plays a mission-critical function. It would be costly in time and maybe money if some kind of screw-up happened during or after the transition to another software. It also represents a small percentage of a typical business's overall cost. So even if QuickBooks raises the price in large percentage terms, saving a few dollars per month here or there, it's not going to move the needle for most businesses' total costs. In fact, they recently hiked the monthly cost for the online version, at least for me, to $35 Canadian dollars from $30. That's a 16% jump, and it was based on new features being added, which I still don't know what they are, nor do I need them or use them. But just think about it. They can only do this because they're aware of these strong switching costs. It's going to take you time 
to call up your credit card and re-log in all your uh, different accounts to a new software. It's going to cause like the mental load of knowing that you have this extra work to do just to switch to a different platform for your accounting. That's right. So I didn't even mention those other functions, such as the fact that you have the ability to feed in, say, your credit card or other bank accounts so that the transactions feed into your QuickBooks accounting or bookkeeping software. Changing software providers would mean having to do that all again. And although it's really not that much work, it's really the mental load of doing that. And also a lot of companies integrate payroll or use the payroll function in QuickBooks to pay their employees. So yes, that further goes to the whole mission critical aspect that if you were to switch providers and something were to go wrong and you were only going to save in dollar amounts, not that much anyway, then that's another inhibitor or that that's another factor that would prevent you or make you think twice about switching. All right. So Intuit also has TurboTax. Is there anything you can talk about with modes for TurboTax? So with TurboTax, it also has switching costs because you can feed in all your tax information, which becomes kind of like a library. You can refer to it the next year. But what's different is TurboTax is really a DIY self-tax preparation software for retail. And you're not using it all year. You're really using it mostly around tax time. So I don't see the switching costs nearly as strong as for QuickBooks, where it takes a lot longer to get up to speed on the nuances and ins and outs of it. I see TurboTax as, right, it still has that switching cost mode, but not nearly as strong as QuickBooks. And on an overall basis, it makes about half of the business for Intuit. Okay, are we ready to move on to the next point in your checklist? Yeah, sure. So we're at capital allocation for Intuit. I see Intuit's capital allocation as pretty decent from what I've done so far. On the surface, it seems okay. On the plus side, we can see that the company has leaned in harder to buy more shares when the stock was trading at a better valuation. And as the stock has gotten kind of expensive over the last few years, you can see in the numbers that Intuit has really backed away and bought a minimal amount of shares. Really, the amount that they're buying now is enough to mop up a partial amount of the stock options that it issues each year to executives. I don't really have any insights to its capital allocation. I also noticed that Intuit makes the occasional acquisition. And recently, it has been trying to buy a company called Credit Karma for $7 billion. And Credit Karma is more on the personal finance side, a little outside the realm of what I see as the core business or definitely straying a bit more from the small business QuickBooks software. And that's all I have to say on its capital allocation. I could see a little bit of a relationship there because by purchasing Credit Karma, then they're also purchasing the contents or the the contacts of the people that are using Credit Karma. So those are people that they could now directly target for their ads or have them switch over to, to their services? That's right. So that's the point the company makes is that it really increases what they call their total addressable market. You could perhaps channel a lot of those existing customers to use TurboTax, I assume. Basically, it sounds like they, they could be taking out their competition and making their competition part of their business. That's right. And that attracted the attention of the U.S. Department of Justice. And they're doing some kind of antitrust investigation. My understanding is that right in 2017, Credit Karma started offering a free 
tax filing software, which means that its intention could very well be to just to curb competition by taking them out. Well, time will tell. We'll see where that goes. That's right. Interesting fact. Okay. What is the next check on your checklist? Reinvestment runway. What is the reinvestment runway for Intuit? I'm not really sure on this one, and that doesn't mean that there isn't a great reinvestment runway. The company's own shares are not compelling value at all at the current price, in my view. And Intuit's slowdown of the repurchasing of shares I think confirms that. Where else can it reinvest? Acquisitions. Up until now, Intuit would make acquisitions sporadically, but within annual free cash flow, but has recently entered, as I mentioned, into that agreement to buy Credit Karma. So I, yeah, I think for something like that, I'd have to really do more work on. And that's the thing with this checklist is that it actually takes some work because a lot of these are just qualitative factors and you, you have to dig into it a little bit into the context and so forth. But I think the benefit here again is when you allow companies in your portfolio, you want to be sure that they have certain attributes you're looking for. And that's hard to do with just a mechanical screen. And by mechanical screen, what are you talking about? There are good ways of filtering down there are thousands of names out there. So when we use mechanical com- computer-aided screens, we can screen for attributes such as a high return on capital. That means a company's ability to make a lot of money each year based on the capital needed in the business. That's a sign of moats. Uh, and another one is just valuation. And what's the free cash flow yield? So how much money does this company make as a percentage of its price? You can use screens to filter down the large universe into a smaller universe. But along the way, you still need to dig in to those qualitative factors because a lot of times companies are cheap for a reason. We just spoke about discovery. You know, it's cheap for a certain reason. There's a certain overhang. And unless you dig into it, it's hard to gain an understanding of what it's about and whether it truly fits what you want to enter your portfolio, especially if you have a concentrated portfolio. If you have thousands of names, I think that's one thing. But assuming that you want to focus your time and energy on your best ideas comes important to really drill down into the companies, into the competitive situation, etc. before you make a purchase decision. Sounds good. Last but not least, valuation for Intuit. For Intuit, I'm really drawn to the company. And I think about it all the time. Being a user, I can, as I said, I can feel those switching costs. I know it's really hard to rip this out of your business once integrated. And as you can see, I'm less sure. I haven't quite done the work yet uh, to verify what I see as its reinvestment opportunities in the company's capital allocation. That's, that's a study of history and then coming to decisions whether you think that past history applies to the future, whether you would place confidence in that decision-making ability. But last but not least is valuation. Is the price right? If we look at Intuit, at the current price of around $325 per share, the stock trades at 37 times annual earnings. And yes, that's high. But if we drill a little deeper, I would say the setup from this point is not that favorable to achieving returns that resemble what unfolded over the past 10 years. Now, what am I talking about? The share price appreciation from the $40 level at the end of 2010 to 325 today is eight times or what we call an eight-bagger. This is also a 23% annualized return. Now, that's fantastic. But free cash flow per share over that time grew at only a little over 12% on an annualized basis. Now, just to break it down, in a very simple world, we can break returns down into two factors, earnings growth 
and how much the multiple grew or contracted. So assuming the multiple didn't change or the valuation multiple didn't change, then we would have achieved a 12% return or a little over three times over those 10 years, which is still excellent. But the difference between the three times, the eight times came from, again, multiple expansion. So the stock started at about 14 and a half times free cash flow in 2010 versus today's 37 times. Now, in order to generate the same returns over the next 10 years, the trading multiple would have to be 95 times earnings in the year 2030, assuming the 12% growth in earnings keeps constant. Where I would become more compelled to spend more time studying this company would be if the price came down more to the earth. I don't know if and when that'll ever happen. It'll probably require some kind of scandal that I can look through as being temporary. I mean, that does happen time and again to high quality companies. What I can say is I just don't think the setup is good, given that this is now a much larger company than it was 10 years ago and is trading at a much higher multiple. So this is just basically the starting point. So again, we uh, at Starvon Capital take investing very seriously. And this is just a quick overview to show you how we might look at a company with our checklist before we dig deep into the math. Exactly. Just like to add here that you might totally disagree with my checklist, but the main point here is to have one because assuming you're going to be making a lot of decisions over the decades, you want to refer back to what worked and what didn't work in your decision process. And if you don't have some kind of system or process, it's going to be hard for you to compare your decisions across time. And that's all. I mean, we want consistency. I think we all desire consistency over time. And what better way to do that than to really be aware of why you make decisions. Well, thank you for listening. And if you have any questions about value investing, please send them along to podcast at starvinecapital.com. And we've really been appreciating all the reviews we're getting on Apple Podcast. So if you have time and you like the podcast, please go there and give us a review that really helps us get discovered. And again, we're on Instagram, Value Investing, the Starvine Way. Thanks for listening. Please like, share this with anyone you're interested in investing and stocks. Thank you for listening. Thank you.